Thank you, Sierra. It's good to be back. Today we're going to talk about food. So every single one of you um, should be really interested and engaged because it's something that pertains to, to all of us in a very substantial way. Um, the first time I went to Africa, which was in, um, I think it was in 98, You've got the, the, there's obviously a big difference in, in, in culture and in um, architecture and comfort and standard of living and all, and all these kinds of things. But one of the most memorable realizations that I had was how inconvenient it was to get food. We got there, settled in, and I'm like, mm, I'd like to eat something, you know? And we're used to just walking to the convenience store, going to the grocery store, grabbing something out of the fridge, whatever. Didn't exist. I just wanted a candy bar. Didn't exist. We have an extraordinarily convenient access to anything we want to eat and drink. We have constant streams of... of programming. Um, I don't watch any of the food channels, and I don't even know, I don't know how many they are, I don't know how many programs they are, but I'm at the, the gym pretty regularly, and they have the TVs on, and, the, and there's always a food channel going, and there's always, there's the British, I mean, these are just from being at the gym, the British Bake Off, the Dives Diners, and I can't remember the third one. Man, that guy, like, royally stuffs his face every time. It's almost kind of gross. Um, I don't know the guy's name. He's got white hair and he drives the red Corvette, I think. Um, there's the kids baking competitions. And uh, there's just this, this obsession with food that we have here in America. And we should ask the question, why are we so obsessed with it? We should ask it. And then when we come to a passage today or we see throughout Scripture the, the examples and the admonitions for us to fast, um, and, and it, you can see it a little bit in our, in our <laughs> diet literature. Uh, so we've got, uh, we've got this enormous emphasis on food and we have these, these nonstop uh, messages of diets. And one of them now is fasting and intermittent fasting and various types of fasting is a healthy alternative to traditional or fad diets. But anyway, um, why would we fast? Why would we fast? So today I want to look at the question, um, and we're going to get out of Ezra a little bit, why, what is eating? What is eating? And then we'll look at what is fasting. So I want to spend a little bit of time in the, uh, the Garden of Eden, the very beginning of Scripture, where God is creating food, God is creating humanity, God is creating eating. And we see here in the Garden, I'm not going to read any of the text, but we're familiar with it, I think. If you're a guest here, your first three chapters of Genesis, if you're unfamiliar with the story, the first three chapters of the Bible hold these stories here. And so God creates um, humanity, man and woman, they live in a garden, and then he um, grows a garden for them. 
and they can eat anything in this garden. There are fruit trees, there are plants, they can eat anything that they want except for one thing. They can't eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, God tells them if they do eat from the, guard, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they will die. They can eat anything else, including the tree of life, and they will continue to live. And so we see here in the initial picture of humanity in the garden with all of the food they need, okay, all of the food they need, not lacking anything. They see that they're eating, okay, in terms of how God set things up with them, their eating is integrated with the state of their being, with the state of their living, with the state of their souls. If they eat right, they will live. If they do not eat right, they are going to die. We see that restraint in their eating is essential for their living. Restraint. Restraint from do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm not going to get into all of the, the theological or philosophical aspects of the knowledge of good and evil and what link that has to their eating and dying. But we can see that, that, that God has put their livelihood, He's put the state of their souls, He's put their physical lives as connected to their eating. Not just um, nutrition. Not just nutrition. But their whole being. We see that unbridled pursuit of their appetites will bring death. If they throw off the restrictions, they are going to die. So then man and woman are in the garden. And they're at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man and woman are. And there's the serpent. And woman is looking at the tree. She's looking at the fruit. And the serpent says, did God really tell you that you can't eat from anything in the garden? So he starts to twist and deceive. And she goes, no, 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 no. God said that we can eat anything in the garden except not from this tree. In fact, we can't even touch it which isn't what the text reported that God told Adam, but at least it seems like Adam even put more prohibitions around it than God gave them. And then the serpent says, no, 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 no. God knows that you're not going to die. He knows that what's really going to happen is that you'll become like him. In your eating, you will become godlike. You will be fulfilled. You will be like him. You will be God's yourself. So in their eating, they're going to be fulfilled. They're going to be complete. They're going to be whole. And so she looks at it, and she says, hmm, it does look like it's going to be great for food. So there's nourishment. That's the base level of what food provides. It would bring nourishment. It's good for food. Then she says, you know what? It's also a delight to the eyes. There's a, there's a fulfilling or at least enticing visual character to food that draws us in beyond the need or the desire for nourishment. We are drawn and attracted to that beauty most likely, and it seems like, in, in connecting or in consuming that beauty, we will become beauty, beautiful ourselves. 
And then she says, or the text says she understood that it would make her wise. So eating leads to wisdom. Eating, eating leads to godlikeness. Eating leads to beauty. Eating leads to a sense that I'm going to be complete and more fulfilled than I feel right now. And God is holding me back. He is restricting my eating. I want to be like God. See, man and woman were not perfect in the garden. They were not perfect. There's something within woman and man at this point where there is a sense of, of lack. And she's aspiring to something greater, and that something greater is going to be found through eating. Well, then we obviously they know, we know they take, they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they violated the restrictions. They were unrestrained in their eating. Their eyes were opened, which means they lost a sense of innocence in their eating. Eating is connected to this loss of innocence. They knew they were naked. They, eating was connected to their sense of being vulnerable, of being exposed, and of being insecure, of being ashamed. In their eating, they became ashamed. They sensed guilt. They sensed fear. They hid from themselves. They created cloths to cover their bodies so that their nakedness would not be exposed. This is what eating caused. And then they hid from God. In their unbridled pursuit of food, it brought death. It brought death. Not death to them physically at that moment, but the death of their souls, the death of their hearts. As you read throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, we see that God integrates um, the, the wholeness and the, and the flourishing of Israel and their worship of him with eating. There are feasts, and then there is a restriction from eating in their fasts. And then when we get to Leviticus, we have all of the Levitical dietary restrictions that created a separation between them and the other nations, making them holy. In their eating, they would become holy. In unrestricted eating, they would be unholy. And so throughout Scripture, just here at the beginning, the first five books, not nearly a complete theology of food and drink from the Scriptures, but just the beginnings here, we can see that eating is an expression of satisfying not just the hunger appetites that we have in terms of, I feel hungry, my stomach is growling, I would like to eat. Eating satisfies that, obviously, but we see that eating is an expression of satisfying really all of our appetites, all of our desires. We see that not only is nourishing us, but nourishing our, our very souls, our very spirits, uh, providing emotional, spiritual wholeness. Leon Cass who's written a lot on this actually, says that hunger or the sense of lack, the sense that, that I am in need of something, is the origin of all of the appetites of the hungry soul. The origin of all of the appetites of the hungry soul. That's one expert on it. 
philosopher, another expert, my own daughter, Alicia Stagg, a few months ago came downstairs. This is just a classic quote that will exist in the entire history of our family. She comes downstairs, I love popcorn. It's gotten me through so many troubles. <laughs> She's acknowledging in that statement, probably not with a whole lot of thought about it, but what she was acknowledging was the reality that we all know. Food and drink is much more than just nourishment to our physical bodies. It provides mental, emotional, and spiritual vitality. And in that, it can also provide moral, spiritual, and physical destruction. So what is fasting? What is fasting? Fasting is simply the abstaining from food. It can be a few hours. It can be a few days. And we see it in the Gospels that Jesus fasted for an entire month. We see in, in the book of Ezra, we see in the book of Ezra, a, a, he initiates a fast, and it says that they humbled themselves before God and fasted, and fasted. So the scenario, so Ezra had been really called out by the king, king of, of, of Persia at that time, or that may have still been Babylon, anyway. He had been instructed to go and provide teaching and instruction to Israel, who had gone back to rebuild Jerusalem. And he did a lot of planning and a lot of preparation. He had, he had all of the physical things. I mean, this guy was a, was a strategic planner. He was an event planner. He was a logistics master. He was a, a his, his official skill set was, a, he was a Bible teacher. But he was exceptional in these other things. He would be the guy you would go to for, all, for, for putting together an adequate plan to accomplish a task. But Ezra knew that the, the fulfillment of their task depended on a lot more than just him having a good plan, putting all the pieces in place, getting all the players involved, and, and going forth. He knew that it was going to take much more than that. He knew that it was going to take the protection of God. He knew that it needed protection. But he had told the king that God was on their side and that God protects those who love him and brings wrath upon those who do not love him. And so Ezra felt it would be not only dishonorable to himself and to his team, but dishonorable to the name of God to go to the king and say, King, we're gonna, we're, we've got everything ready to fulfill what you've called me to do. Um, we need a battalion of soldiers in order to protect us along the way. He felt that that would dishonor God, dishonor them as a, as a group, so... They fasted. They fasted in order to draw upon the strength of God to protect them on their journey. So what fasting is, this is just obviously one of many examples throughout Scripture. Fasting is, is, is more than just abstaining from food in order to experience um, some suffering that then further 
presses us to draw upon God for our strength. It is a, it is a recognition that not only are we in need of physical nourishment that God provides, but we are in need of an experience of God's power, of God's presence, of God protecting us, of God um, enabling us, of God coming into our very minds and souls and spirits and experiencing Him in a way that we usually reserve for food. We say, you know what, we, we recognize that we do not live by bread alone, but we live by the word and the power of God. And so fasting is a, is a recognition of that. Fasting is a, is a, is a I mean, we can, we can mentally acknowledge that and know that. But fasting is taking that step of faith and acknowledging in our very bodies and in our minds and in our souls that we are in desperate need of God. I believe that he will fulfill us in a way that I in my works and efforts and in my eating will never be able to satisfy. That's what fasting is. That's what fasting is. We train the mind, the body, the soul, and the spirit to look beyond bread alone to satisfy our appetites. Now the problem is, or one of the problems, is that oftentimes our appetites don't extend very far beyond our physical appetites. And I think Lauren spent some time on this last week. Why is it that we, 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 we find ourselves praying a lot for our maintenance needs, the things that we need, the things that God has promised that we need in order to survive, food, clothing, shelter. God has promised to bless those upon us, uh, and God has instructed us to ask for those things. But we don't fast. I think one of the reasons why we don't fast is because oftentimes that's where our appetites end. That's where our desires end. If I have my needs taken care of, I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. The examples of fasting that we see in Nehemiah and in Ezra um, come only after we see that their physical needs have been satisfied and they are aspiring and hunger for the fulfilling of appetites that go beyond their physical need. Both Ezra and Nehemiah and the people close to them fasted because their aspirations and hunger for God's blessings to come upon Israel were great. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He had access to wealth and comfort beyond anybody else in the nation of Israel, save the king himself and the nation of Babylon. He didn't, he didn't need anything. But he was empty. He was unfulfilled. His appetites and his hungers were substantial. It says that he cried and he fasted for days. And so, are we desperate enough and do we hunger enough 
for things beyond our own needs. I mean, we're in America. It's a rich country. Very few of us, if any of us in here, experience the type of, of, of pod, poverty and going without food that would really press us towards a hungry state physically. But the needs that we have in our families that go beyond physical nourishment, the needs that we have in, in the church that go beyond physical nourishment, the needs that our city has, our country, the kingdom of God, there are, there are deep hungers there. There are deep hungers there. Over, the, over this last month, as I shared initially in the first sermon, um, just within my own family, there have been things that have caused me to fast and to pray and to cry out and to experience pain that I have not experienced in a long time. I'm full. I eat enough, obviously. But there is great need. And it's need that I have no control over. It's need that I can't do anything about. And I don't want to just sit by and let what I see as deep hungers, deep pains, deep needs go. I've got to, I've got to do something to fight. And we must pray. It's part of it. And prayer takes time, it takes energy, it takes mind renewal, it takes commitment, especially the Lord works through the persistent prayers, Scripture say. If we abide in Christ, one of the elements of our abiding is prayer. We've got to pray. And we need to fast. It's that, it's that extra step, and it's not, you know, we can, we can think of it as a works thing. We can, we can think of it as a works thing and think that, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast, I'm going to fast weekly, or I'm going to do a, a, a two- or three-day fast once a month. You know, we can set up some, some, some fancy systems and structures and disciplines, thinking that in the doing of our fasting, God now owes me. That's not going to work. God doesn't owe you anything. You don't fast for God's sake. I was talking with Lawrence this week, and he just brought up a metaphor, and I think he shared it last week about, you know, when you're a family and you're making something, like a birthday cake, or we make pizza a lot. Hey, kids, come and help me make some pizza. And I love it when they want to come and help me, because I want to do it with them. I want them to enjoy the time with me. I want to enjoy my time with them. And we listen to music and we have a lot of fun. But when they don't want to come and help, I'm kind of bummed. But you know what? The pizza will still get made. I would just enjoy it more with my kids. And that's what prayer is. That's what fasting is. It's, it's not as if God is going to stop what he's doing because we decide not to follow him in these things. He's going to accomplish his purpose. And if you're not going to jump in and help, somebody else will. Jesus says in the, in the upper room discourse in John 14 through 17, or maybe it's, maybe it's Paul in Romans 9 through 11. Anyway, <laughs> he's talking to Gentiles, which it couldn't have been Jesus. It, he says, you know what, Gentiles, if you don't fulfill the calling that God has put upon you now as, as 
members of his family. He's cut off Israel temporarily and grafted you on Gentiles, but if you don't fulfill what you're calling to do, he can cut you off just as easy and put somebody else on that graft as well. God is going to draw people through the power of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of his word into his purposes and plans. But you know what? He wants all of us to participate. And he will accomplish his purposes. And so we must step out in prayer and make the commitment to that. And we must step out in fasting. Because fasting, again, we don't do it for God. We do it for ourselves. We do it for ourselves. And it's, a, it's an expression of faith. It's an expression of the hunger and the needs that we experience that we communicate in prayer, but we feel more proper um, what's the word? Sometimes just voicing our needs just doesn't cut it. And we've got to have a way of expressing our desires and our needs in a way that fully captures our entire being. And that's fasting. And from what I've read and from my own experience, yes, it's unpleasant in the experience of the hunger. But the spiritual vitality and the sense of God's filling, and the sense of, the, of joy that the Holy Spirit gives, just this last week, was drawn into fasting. Cried like I have not cried in at least a decade. Problems didn't go away. But I felt the presence of God in a way that I had not felt in a long time too. God fills us when we step out in faith in the midst of our suffering. And this is what Paul and Jesus and the apostles and Peter, they talk about. If we pray that we would experience the suffering, we, if, we, if we believe that God's deliverance of our suffering is not that he would remove it, but that he would fill us with a sense of joy and gratitude and patience and full courage. That God is going to do something inside of us in the midst of our suffering that rises us above and fills us with a sense of his presence and a sense of joy and gratitude that only the gospel and only the Holy Spirit can do. If we don't, if we don't believe that the, that, that path of knowing God and that path of pursuing him is going to necessarily involve suffering. We're not believing the gospel. For God called us not only to know him and to be in his name and to be a part of his family, but Philippians teaches that, teaches that God also has called us to suffer for his name. And fasting is suffering. It is suffering. So we can't do it thinking that God owes us something. We have to go there in faith believing that God is going to work because of his love for us and his love for the world, and he wants us to be involved in that, and that he's going to fill us with a sense of his presence and of his, of his confidence and of his power in order for us to engage more fully in that work. That's what God is going to do through our fasting. We could ignore it, too. We can just say, you know what, I, I do my prayers. 
I give, I'm serving. That's just one step. You know, when, when I think about fasting, I'll usually plan it like in my week. And, and, I, and, and just, I, I dread the day coming. It's, it's just, it's just oh, I'm going to have a whole day without eating because I love eating. <laughs> I don't need to do it. God accepts me. God loves me. I'm serious enough in my prayers and in my devotion and in my obedience. I don't need to do it. And you know what? There's no law. There's no law. God is going to continue to love you. God is going to continue to fulfill his purposes. You could completely ignore it. But you'd be missing out. You'd be missing out. And we would be missing out. Because again, if you look at Ezra, Nehemiah, Jesus, the apostles, all the stories of the men and women who vigilantly prayed and fasted, their experience of God and their fruitfulness in the kingdom and their sense of being full. You know, because the, the food and the drink, that never fills us, does it? We, and the more we have, the more it seems like we want. Now, God is the only one that is going to fulfill all of these appetites and fulfill, of all, fulfill all of these desires that we pursue so aggressively food to fulfill, but doesn't. And so that's what we must believe. We must believe that, that, that God will work through these things, not because he owes us, but because he loves us and is drawing us in and calls us to suffer as Jesus did. Let me pray.